0: Hello, America, and happy Friday. What a busy news Friday it is indeed. Lots of news breaking out across this country. Just the has been on all of it all through the night, starting with the wee hours of the morning when the former prime minister of Japan, Prime Minister Abe, was assassinated by a deranged gunman in Japan. A big loss for the world. Abe was widely respected across the world, he was friends with both President Barack Obama and President Donald Trump was somebody who believed in a strong Pacific defense against China aggression. The world will miss him. Japan is in mourning. And it's also in shock because it is a rare thing to see a gun crime or an assassination on the island of Japan. So our hearts and thoughts are with the Japanese people today. But that was only the beginning of an extraordinarily Busy news day on the election integrity front, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and this is a blockbuster ruling that those mobile ballot drop boxes that were set out in the 2020 election that the Democrats used to their great advantage in the state. Well, they were unlawful. They were illegal. They're not allowed under Wisconsin law. This is a great example where the legislature never approved these ballot boxes a unelected bureaucrats at the Wisconsin Election Commission did so. They got reined in today. It's too late to fix what happened in Wisconsin in 2020, but it will prevent the use of these boxes in 2022. The midterm elections take away one of the strategic capabilities that Democrats exploited in 2020. It would also make the act of harvesting, the illegal collecting of third-party ballots and dropping them off a lot harder, according to experts. This is a very... Big ruling, and it's big for one other reason. We all need to be focusing forward 2022 2024 elections, get the rules right, get over our distrust of each other, make elections trustworthy again, make them great again. But in the alternative to that, there is one thing this is about the 32nd revelation about the November 2020 elections that show there were irregularities, in some cases, illegalities, in some cases, foreign intrusions that weren't acknowledged at the time, like the two Iranian men we've talked about who stole 100,000 Americans' voter identities and tried to influence the 2020 election, often against Republicans. The big lie now is, and I want to say this based on fact, this isn't a spin job, this is fact, the big lie is that nothing went wrong in the 2020 election because that's what the Democrats and the January 6th committee have been preaching to American public. In fact, many things went wrong. Some of them illegal. In Wisconsin alone, you now have the ballot boxes declared, the mobile ballot boxes, the drop boxes declared unlawful. You also have the fact that that many Wisconsinites were wrongly given permission to skip voter ID requirements for absentee ballots by allowing to declare themselves confined at home just because they are afraid to go out with COVID. That was not a legal distinction allowed under Wisconsin law. The Wisconsin Supreme Court have ruled that two of the tactical changes that Wisconsin bureaucrats made in the 2020 election were unlawful, illegal. You've got the Arizona audit, right? We know all about those things. You've got the FBI indictment of the Iranians meddling in the election against Republicans. There are many. I've made a long list of these. I've put them out before. But the truth of the matter is, once again, there is irrefutable proof that what went on in the 2020 election were significant irregularities, in some cases, illegalities, unlawful instructions, you know, Pennsylvania has been determined that no-excuse absentee ballots, which were distributed in 2020, weren't authorized by the law. It requires a constitutional amendment, according to the courts. The big lie now is that nothing happened that was unusual in the 2020 election. It was a perfect election. That is now the known big lie in America We need to come to grips with it, not because we're trying to settle scores or declare Donald Trump or Democrats right, it's because we have to get a grip on what went wrong, fix it, so that Democrats and Republicans, independents, all have confidence that the way votes are counted are accurate, that it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. That is our goal, and we can't achieve it if one half of the country refuses to acknowledge the irregularities, illegalities that did occur in 2020. These were significant, maybe not unpredictable because we were in the middle of a pandemic, but to deny that something unusual happened in 2020 is to deny truth and fact, which we shouldn't do. We need to get this under control so we all trust each other in the counting of votes going forward. All right, well, if that wasn't a big enough news for you, along with the assassination of former Prime Minister Abe in Japan. Well, we've got a couple more for you. Just a little bit ago, we broke this story at Just the Do. Senators Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley have asked the Justice Department to investigate payments they said Hunter Biden made to a suspected prostitution and sex trafficking ring in Russia. Yeah, that's right. Not in America. In Russia. The two senators who have investigated Hunter Biden's activities quite a bit, very critical on why it's taking so long for the Justice Department to wrap up the Hunter Biden criminal probe, why there's so much going on that doesn't make sense. And there seems to be concerns about conflicts of interest at the Justice Department. Here is the key quote from the letter that the senator sent late last night that just the News broke this morning, quote, what is the Justice Department trying to hide from Congress the American people, question mark. A good question from Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, two people who know more than anything, anybody, about what Hunter Biden was up to in his foreign business dealings, a question we should all be asking ourselves. All right, one last one before we go to commercial break, and I'll tell you about our guests in a second because we've got some great guests on the show. Another great media myth has disappeared. One more time, a story we were told to trust and believe by the American news media has once again fallen to the wayside of falsehood. Just a little bit ago, just the news obtained from the Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner, Commissioner Magnus. The final findings of the famous incident where Customs and Border Patrol agents, Border Protection agents, were accused of whipping migrants in the Del Rio Secto in the river while they're on horseback using the reins as whips. I want to read to you what Commissioner Magnus sent his entire staff. We obtained it first. We're first on this at JustTheNews.com. You can go read the memo yourself. Quote, there is no evidence any agent struck intentionally or otherwise any migrant with their reins. We read you that again. There is no evidence any agent struck intentionally or otherwise any migrant with with their reins. To all the media who accuse those CPB agents of whipping migrants, you owe the Border Patrol agents of America a significant correction and an apology. That is a significant finding. Let me give you one other finding. There is no evidence, according to Commissioner Magnus, that any migrant was ultimately forced to return to Mexico or denied entry into the United States. Now, The commissioner said there are some command and control problems there's improper training, some communication frequency questions, but that doesn't mean that while they're fixing things and making things better, that the accusations that were allowed to stand and infect the American public's reputation or perception of the border patrol, there's an extraordinary moment here to realize we were given a false story once again by the corporate media in America. And that's very important. All right, folks. We've got a great podcast. You very timely for sure. First up, Brent Sadler, one of the great experts in the national security space, great advisor. He's going to be here to talk a little bit about what we learned from former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassination and the legacy that Abe leaves behind—a legacy of bipartisan respect on the global stage. Uh, somebody who was beloved in Japan. He was the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history. His family has a long history of leadership in the country. I think Abe's legacy a lot will have to do with the effort to bring an allied resistance, a NATO for the Pacific, a PADO, as we might call it, to begin to resist the growing aggression of China in the Pacific region. Prime Minister Abe was a relentless critic of communism and an advocate for creating a strong Pro-Democracy, Pro-West Alliance for Security in the Pacific. Brent Sadler here to talk about that. He, of course, is at the Heritage Foundation, has worked in some of the most important jobs in national security over his very storied career. And he's currently the Senior Research Fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. A great expert indeed joining us. And then after that, well, we got some big new... Economic news today a large growth in jobs, but also further blinking red lights, and inflation may still be burning red hot in America. We've got the person, second perfect guest for that Christine McDaniel, former Treasury Department official, senior fellow at Mercatus. She's going to talk, make sense of all these numbers, what we can expect about inflation, gas prices, energy prices, the job market. A great conversation with Christine McDaniel. Always enjoy having her on the show. Two great guests. Back-to-back Brent Sadler, Christine McDaniel, right after this commercial break. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite. titlelock.com to today and protect your most important asset the equity in your home All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. A major loss on the world stage today as former Prime Minister Abe from Japan uh, is gunned down by an assassin. It's left a big hole in the world, uh, certainly in the Great Island of Japan. And our next guest knows a lot about that region, a 26-year uh, veteran of the Navy and one of the key players at Pacific Command back just a few short years ago today. He's a senior research fellow at the Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology Center for National Defense at... Heritage Foundation. He is Brent Sadler. Brent, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. You do such amazing work and you understand the Pacific like very few others. Abe leaves a very large hole in the world stage, doesn't he?
1: Absolutely. He's been a friend of the United States. And very importantly, when I, I, I was just coming back from Japan uh, over the weekend, actually, after two weeks there. So I have a long and close relationship and haven't even grown up there. So uh Prime Minister Abe's leadership as prime minister, both his short stint back in 2006, 7 and then again, uh, the last, you know, from 2012 to 2020, have been remarkable and have led Japan to a much more realistic approach to the dangerous neighborhood that they live. And the Japanese people are, are very much aware of the dangers. And I think, sadly, his assassination will only harden their resolve to take more seriously the dangers that are at their
0: footsteps. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. One of the things he was so instrumental with, particularly with President Trump, invigorating the Quad movement, the beginning of what I think really is a NATO for the Pacific. In fact, I, I recently had an interview with President Trump, uh, and he said, hey, I think we're headed towards a pay-doh. Either we're going to take NATO over there or create a pay But the role that he played in bringing the security coalitions together with the United States, with Australia, our other allies to counter China's malign influence and their aggressive behavior, how important is that?
1: Well, absolutely. I think, uh, so, It's been no secret that even before he was prime minister, uh, Shinzo Abe had been working to try to change the way that the Japanese constitution was being interpreted. It's overly pacifist and had been past its time for the threats in the United States for decades. If you want to really go back in the 80s, during the height of the Cold War, been trying to get Japan to be more of a player and a more realistic partner in the security and, and no one did more to advance that than, than Shinzo Abe. Uh, his idea of what was then called the Democratic Diamond, which is the forbearer to what we're all calling the Quad, it really was his idea and his conceptualization.
0: Amazing. What a legacy to leave behind and one and one that's being built on even, even today uh, in an administration that hasn't given as much attention to the, the threat of the Pacific. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, we saw this extraordinary moment earlier this week where the head of MI5 and our FBI director, Chris Ray issued a very urgent warning about China's malign influence, its efforts to spy and break economic supremacy in the West. Uh, The language there, so different from the language and the actions of the Biden administration, whether it was canceling the China influence program at the FBI uh, that were rooting out Chinese spies in an academic world, to now talking about lifting the tariffs and other favorable actions against China. It seems like the people beneath the president understand a very real threat, but the president's um, policies and behavior seems to downplay that threat. What's going on in that gap?
1: I think what I was just having this conversation the other day and watching it from abroad while I was in Tokyo is much more stark. It appears that there's two factions forming in the Biden administration. There's, there's a faction that I would say has been developing since the embarrassment of the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident, where the United States uh, looked diplomatically weak when the Chinese retained control of an atoll that the Filipinos claimed. And ever since then, the what we call the panda huggers have lost out. and they, they, they basically been pushed to the side of the policy debate. But what this looks like is a return to this engagement crowd that seems to want to try to get back to a friendlier, more placid time with the Chinese. And I, I think it's out of step with the reality of the last 20 years. But it looks like there's an internal policy battle that's forming.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, as we look out over the very turbulent world we're in, whether China's aggression, In fact, China was circling Japan uh, this week with its warships. That's another provocation of many that we've seen. Uh, The the U.S. seems to be more receded, that it's often leading from behind under Joe Biden. A guy that kind of filled that gap, Boris Johnson, at least on the Russia front, uh, now on his way out, ousted from power. Uh, Who does the West turn to for leadership as the Biden administration has these sort of fumbles and tensions among itself about which is the best way to proceed in the world stage
1: no it's a i mean it's a good question i mean now that i mean i would probably say uh, japan takes on an even more active role i mean australia has a new leadership in there to be yet to be determined how they aggressive they are or shining the light in the direction for demo- you know a beacon for democracy western europe it's not looking good there i i'm scratching my head to say who would fill the void there and, and boris johnson was very very forceful early on in trying to rally NATO nations to provide weapons and equipment so that Ukraine could defend themselves against the Russian invasion. I'm not sure we'll see a change in that, but there's not that colorful leadership that you would need to rally people and resources that we had just
0: recently. Yeah, and I think Russia's betting on that, that the uh, the West, particularly the Europeans, will lose their will as winter comes and uh, the, the lack of uh, Russian gas suddenly weighs in on their marketplaces. Uh, uh, he's such a wily player, Putin, that you just have to wonder whether he's mm-hmm. banking on that that failure in leadership. Uh, you have done so much to study, and your your columns are amazing. Uh, and I, I like people who not only identify the problem, but identify the solution. And you do that so much with your research, your columns. You had a really good column, uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, about the fact that, you know, we're all patting ourselves on the back here in Washington, that we had a one-time defense budget increase to kind of deter China, but your point is, one year, one budget, that's not what we need. We're in a very long, hard, big war uh, struggle with uh, China. Talk a little bit about the short-sightedness of Washington on China right now.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, unless you build in the institutions and also build in longer-term sustained resourcing, you're not going to be able to build up the military that's atrophied for really pretty much, the, most of the 30 years of the post-Cold War era. But the one that's the hardest to rebuild and to reconstitute is the shipyards, the shipbuilding, and the crews to, to man a Navy that we need. And it's, I mean, for, you know, now we're going on six years that the, the request was for 355-ship Navy, and even that was, a, was reduced down from 456. And so all I was going to say is the need for a bigger Navy has only grown, and it's far beyond our capacities. And if we're going to be serious about deterring China, the Navy is a key element of deterring a major war that could occur I mean, as early as 2027, if you believe Secretary Pompeo, Admiral Davidson, and the current Indo-Pacific commander, Admiral Aquilino. So it needs to be urgent, and it needs to be sustained. Otherwise, you're going to be facing the same problem, and you will not have really moved the needle in deterring the Chinese, because they're going to try and wait us out, and they don't think we have the, uh, the stamina to sustain a growth in our military.
0: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. They have a 200-year plan. They they're very patient and we we got to live budget to budget, moment to moment in America. I guess we need that longer strategic lens that you write so brilliantly about at the Heritage Foundation. Uh one last question because I've been uh, looking mm-hmm. around in this Um, uh, moment of history and the United States has a lot of challenges. We got to worry about North Korea, got to worry about Russia, got to worry about China, but it seems as though the concept of a foreign policy doctrine is missing. I know the Biden administration has been very loath to give Congress some of the required notifications of its intentions, its policies, but is there a Biden doctrine or is that one of the things really missing from this presidency, a clear statement of our objectives on the global stage? So,
1: The national defense strategy, they never declassified. They didn't have a declassified version. And so that Congress got the classified version of that. Right. But it's really incomplete because, as you mentioned, there's no national security strategy. And NSS still is missing. And even the interim guidance, it seems to be they're conflicted. Uh, The administration, the president wants to go back to a time in the 90s where there were where you had a very much smaller military threat from China. Russia was weak. The United States could act and set the, by diktat um, or fiat the, the dis- discourse in the world. Yeah. Uh, that's not where we live now. And I don't think short of an acknowledgement of that, we're going to get any needed or necessary clarity out of what is what the nation's priorities should be. Um, they do say the words. China is, is the threat. Right. Um, and I hope that doesn't change.
0: Yeah, no, we have to stick to it. And we got to back up the words with a strategy that I think gets us here, which I think you so brilliantly highlight so often. Uh, one last one I want to just squeeze in, because uh, we, with the extraordinary advantage vantage point that you had at Pacific Command for so long, uh, what is the thing, when you look out over the world right now, what's the thing that keeps you awake at night? What's the one thing you say, boy, of all the security things in the world, this thing bothers me the most?
1: Well, the one that could really blow up, and the odds are, are certainly – much higher than zero, but it's not going to happen anytime in the next weeks or months. And that is that the Chinese wake up one day, Xi Jinping wakes up and decides to make a go at Taiwan or to challenge us nearby Taiwan and demonstrate whether or not we're committed or not. And that'll start a chain of events, which could be um, hard to turn back from and could end up in a war, a major war. That's probably my biggest concern. And everything else kind of plays to how to prevent that from happening. Certainly not this decade. This is a very dangerous decade we're in.
0: Yes, it is. I think we're so, uh, a lot of us are just trying to make ends meet, worried about the gas prices, getting the kids to the soccer game. But uh, this may be one of the most perilous decades in in the last half century for America. Uh, We're so grateful, though, that with everything you do at Heritage, uh, there is some wise and sage advice and analysis going on. Brent, real quick, how do people follow the work you do?
1: Uh, probably the best is uh, to go to heritage.org and just go to my, my page. It's there at the heritage, uh, org, or look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, and I always post the TV, uh, things like we're doing right now. I always try and put all the stuff in the engagements that I do as well as my writing and research.
0: Yeah, I love the, it. And I'll recommend to people, too, that they follow you on Twitter. You've got a great Twitter feed. Oh, yeah. I think it's at Brent D. Sadler, as I remember, right? That's correct. Yeah, great, great work. Brent, such an honor to have you on on such a very important day in history. Thanks for making sense of it. And we'll be sure to get you back on real soon. All right, thanks. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to have a little bit of discussion about the economy. Yeah, those jobless numbers sounded good, but there's also an understory to them. Christine McDaniel, Senior Fellow at Mercatus, former Treasury Department official, up next, right after this commercial break. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain, and you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Uh, Some big job numbers out today. The economy has signs of it being hot in some markets and hot on inflation. We have the perfect person to help us sort this all out. She's a former assistant secretary at the Treasury Department. I'm sorry, former deputy assistant secretary at the Treasury Department, senior trade economist in the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and currently a senior fellow at Mercatus. She is Christine McDaniel. Christine, great to have you back on the show today.
2: Hi, John. Nice to be here.
0: Some big numbers today, uh, 327,000 jobs created in June, I think that's a good sign. Unemployment didn't come down, it held steady, that's good, but what's your take on the jobs report and what it means for the future of the economy?
2: Well, so on one hand, yeah, very strong jobs report. In fact, when you say big, yeah, it was it was really big, it right? Is. It was much bigger than um, than almost all expectations. But, um, and from the Fed's point of view, um, you know, it, it might, it, it's a bit concerning, right? So, I mean, we're still looking at, um, so overall the U.S. economy added 372,000 new jobs th- uh, this past month, and right. that and that was above expectations, and that means if you do the numbers, it means there are about almost two job openings for every unemployed person, wow. right? Um, and so, but, so workers are continuing to quit their jobs, um, and the labor force participation rate, which is something uh, that we watch pretty closely, that that is pre- stayed pretty steady. In fact, it fell a tiny bit. Um, it's not increasing, which is concerning. Um, we also saw average hourly earnings that were pr- pretty strong, but um, earnings are not keeping up with inflation. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of your pricing uh, – tr- terms of your how far your dollar can go not as far for workers but on the other hand for the fed that is kind of um you know that's that's good news in fact they probably want to see more of that right it's because it's not enough we need real wages to decline even more to uh, to reach the feds two percent inflation target yeah right so um so in a a
0: normal economy if we if we weren't inflationary uh, this number of jobs would be great right they'd be throwing a parade saying this is great but in an inflationary economy, it seems like this may add to inflationary pressure. Is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, use the analogy, you know, people say we, we need a soft landing. So think of, think of it, Junior. You're, you're in an, the air in an airplane. You're going way, way, way too fast, right? right. And you, you need to land this plane. Um, at least you need to hover it at 2%. Um, well, you know, and you've got to do it pretty quickly because the more, the longer we have this really high inflation and unanchored inflation expectations, the more, things that can go very badly for the U.S. economy and for U.S. workers and households. So the Fed's mandate is price stability and, of course, you know, low unemployment. But, you know, if you have a choice between 10 percent unemployment and out of control inflation, you know, you want the you want the unemployment, right? Because that just right. means one out of every ten people who want a job can't get one. Right. But out of control inflation means that everybody is suffering a lot, and the entire U.S. economy um, and its role in the in the global economy will suffer.
0: Yeah, such a great point, and uh, it's um, it's a it's a funny moment in history because we wanted to come back from COVID. We wanted to come back uh, to some normalcy in the market. We wanted to get a labor market that was robust. And normally, we'd be excited if wages were going up. People say, oh, "I'm getting more earning power," but they actually have higher wages and less earning power. There's about a three percent gap, right? I think it was five point one percent or five point two percent. Earnings up year over year, but inflation's up at eight point six percent. So that you're basically running backwards, even even with these gains. What is the prescription? What what does the Fed do? After this job report, jobs report, to make sure that it gets closer to a softer landing and not a bounce of a landing.
2: Well, so you know, um, the Fed governors are saying you know they're watching the data very closely. Uh, the the, uh, the decision making process is highly data dependent. Mary Daly yeah. uh, said uh, recently. Uh, you know they're meeting again uh, later this month, and people are looking for you know maybe fifty, maybe seventy five basis points. Um, And then, you know, maybe um, a couple more to to come after that. I mean, it will really depend. I mean, they're really, really waiting to see what it's going to take for this economy to slow down. I mean, we've got gas prices well over $5 for a while across the economy, and our unemployment rate is still at 3.6%, right? So what is it really going to take to slow this economy down? Um, You know, they're trying to do it softly, but, um, you know, there's not much – I mean – i mean the fed obviously it's it's their job right i mean the biden administration um the best thing they can do is just stay out of the way and and stop you know trying to you know blame companies for you know price gouging i mean if there is a true antitrust case then let justice handle it Right. right but um but all this talk about you know forcing company forcing uh gas stations to lower the prices and um, and accusations of price gouging here and there are really not helpful, um, you know, further subsidies, more tax cuts, uh, the gas tax holiday, all that would not be helpful. Uh, it might sound good. It might feel good in the yeah. moment, but it's not going to help the Fed do its job, which is what we desperately need it to
0: do. Yeah, the temptation is to find any political prescription because you're trying to solve the politics problem if you're the president. But some of these political prescriptions actually run contrary to what the the Fed and the Treasury Department are trying to do. And uh, it seems like the perfect storm. I want to ask you about the R word, because it seems like the stock market is flashing recession. The bonds market seems to be f- uh, flashing a recessionary warning light. Uh, even some Democratic governors and Republican governors are saying, "Yeah, I think a recession is probably going to happen." What is your best guess right now in terms of the possibility of a recession?
2: Well, I, I had a I had a professor tell me when I went to grad school, um, don't don't ever don't ever forecast the market unless you are going to get paid a lot and lot of
0: money. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: So I'm not going to do that. But, um, but if you just look at history, I mean, we've never, um, at least in my lifetime, we've never had a situation where uh, inflation rose so fast, so much and so fast, while unemployment stayed so low without a very um, hard landing, you know, without a recession to follow. So, um, but yeah, you know, that doesn't mean you know um, Paul um, and his team can't pull it off. It just means it's going to um, it, it's it's, it's looking going more unlikely.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a <laughs> tough it's a tough job, but it could be done. It, no doubt about it. Um, the the real impact of inflation when you know people had their July 4th barbecues this year, uh, by most estimates, if you believe the the, the economic studies, about 17% higher, about ten dollars more uh, this 4th of July than the last 4th of July to put the food on the on the barbecue. Um, gas seems to be a big deal. This seems to be a moment where the economy feels much more painfully real to Americans. And, you know, a lot of these numbers don't mean anything. There's something that the market studies, but seems like Americans really are beginning to feel a real pinch. Um, is this unusual in the, in the economic cycle to have this much of a pinch?
2: You know, we just had a lot of. We had five trillion dollars pumped into a twenty twenty trillion dollar economy. Yeah. So, you know, we have a there's a lot of uh, money out there. Uh, then people, um, you know, got out of their homes. Demand went way up. Um, now people are traveling again, uh, and you know, and there's still summer travel still looks to be very very strong. Yes. Um. It we'll see if that continues in the fall and the winter. But, um, you know, right now people, it's still a lot of extra money out there. They're looking to spend um, and we kind of have to churn through that. Um, you know, the problem is this is it's felt differently by different income levels though. Right. I mean, so, um, you know, there's um, you know, how much of your income goes to things that you just don't have a choice on like food and gas. So for lower income people, it, it's going to hurt a little bit more. They have less choices for higher income people. Um, you know, they're feeling it less, of course, yeah. but yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, you're definitely starting to see it, but again, you know, you're just not, but they're even saying if we go, and the energy analysts are saying just yesterday, they're not seeing, um, um crude go down below 90. Right. Yeah. Even, even in a, in a pretty big recession, you know, we just don't have the supply. We've been under investing in, um, in, in production and, um, And so we're, you know, we're probably going to be looking at, you know, pretty high, you know, higher than we've been used to, higher gas prices um, for a while. And then, you know, then there's just other longer term issues. You know, China's demographics are changing. They're getting older. Uh, Their wages are going up. So we don't have those big global forces that are pushing prices down. Um, you know, then that really fighting against um, inflation. Most people don't really remember, but, you know, we used to have inflation back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the younger people today, they've never really seen inflation. No, we had a
0: 40 year market where inflation stayed tame. And it's, uh, but if you were in the 70s and yeah. 80s, I remember the gas lines and the late 70s and, you know, interest rates at 13, 14 percent. I think at one point the arms were. So uh, there is a history, right? It's just most young people have never lived through it, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so this could be, you know, this could be uh, well, we'll see how things go. Uh, of course, everybody wants that soft landing. Nobody wants uh, the fed to have, to, you know, to do something like Paul Volcker had to do right. uh, back then. Uh, but um, you know, so that's why, you know, everyone's just really, you know, month by month looking at the data, um, looking at inflation expectations, but the fed's mandate is pr- price stability and obviously to minimize unemployment. You know, and that's what they're desperately trying to do, yep. but um, so far, it looks like this economy is just very strong.
0: Yeah. Yep. So you're at the Fed. You get this number to say, OK, job, job creation was a lot higher. You got a, gr- a gap in, in wages versus um, actual expenditures. Next up is going to be the CPI in a week. When that comes in, what's the Fed going to be thinking? What's the Fed going to be uh, do I Obviously, they got to calculate what the next interest rate hike is. But what, what's the likely process that the Fed and the Treasury Department are going through with all this new data coming in?
2: Well, and so you know they're going to be um, trying to figure out how, um, you know how how to how to digest all of this data. The, the CPI, the PCE, the personal consumer expenditure index. Right. I mean, obviously that's a, that's the, the big thing everyone's looking at. Uh, but then there are all these other indices that kind of that are helpful in interpreting that. So you know it's not just the headline jobs numbers. It's not just the headline unemployment, it's, you know, labor force participation. What is it going to take to bring people back into the labor force? Is it going to take really much higher prices and much higher inflation and, and to really slow down the economy to pull people back into the labor force? Um, you know, these are all like, little well, you know, c- side conversations that, that um, policymakers are likely having at this time. Um, you know, it's not just, it's never just one thing. It's always a myriad of things. Um, and um, you know, it's, it, it, so everyone's absolutely will be waiting for the number next week, but the labor data is really interesting because wow, I mean, um, demand is, is, is either really, really strong that employers have to keep hiring or it might be slowing down a bit, but not. But but employers are afraid to let go of workers, or they're finding good workers. They just want to bring them on. So um, it's not clear we've reached that inflection point yet. Yeah. So um, yeah, everyone's seat buckles are still What's on.
0: driving the? And uh, this comes up a lot. Is it economic forces or cultural forces that are driving the decline? Uh, the the job workforce participation. It's um. It's an odd moment because you know most people get out of college. You're like, we, "Our job's to get a job." Uh, most people, you know, work through the, getting through their kids through college, and they, you know, they have a 20, 30 thirty-year plan to work, forty-year plan to work. Uh, why is the labor market been on a downward decline in participation for so long?
2: So the demographics of the U.S. I mean, uh, you know, the the baby boomers, right? I mean, they're going through their um, their retirement. That whole generation is moving through retirement age. And, um, and a lot of them have come into kind of a windfall, you know, the market's been done, done really well for them. Um, you know, with the, the COVID um, stimulus uh, you know, their parents are passing away, maybe leaving them some money. Um, so, you know, you're just hearing these stories where um, people are like, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't really need to work anymore. I kind of want to, I, I kind of want to enjoy my retirement, you know, before I get too old and too sick. Um, so I think there's there's the, the demographic part of that. They just don't need to work, um, and they want to go out and enjoy life. That doesn't mean they're not going to be spending money, but it just means we lose them from the the, the labor force. Um, but um, but in terms of the younger people, um, you know, the, the labor force participation much higher there. But it's the baby boomers, you know, as they move through life, um, you know, they are entering that that stage of retirement. And so we're losing a lot of them, probably sooner than we we thought we would have thought. But you know they're sitting in a lot of cash.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, um, I want to take a, a, a question because this is a question we 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 hear some policymakers, research, some politicians saying, we could get this inflation down really quickly if we just addressed energy supply, uh, and get more American energy supply. Let's not be relying on the Saudis. Let's not be relying on the Russians or the Venezuelans. Uh, is that an honest answer? Is, is is there a simple fix to some of this inflationary pressure by just getting the energy cost down and by bringing up production in America?
2: Well, so it's it's not just a matter of you know building a quick factory and pumping out widgets really quickly, right? This is a multi year uh, multi year investment. Um, and you know, even if we were to to, to pivot uh, and, and pour more capital into um, exploration and production, um, you know, it would still take years to get it online. So there's that. That's one thing. Um, another thing is, you know, uh, we're moving largely. You know, the, the U.S. is one of the um, number one, number two producer and exporter of um, of oil and natural liquid natural gas right now, right? So we have, um, you know, we're we're diversifying. Uh, I mean, the huge exploration and findings in the um, LNG markets have set the U S up really well for that. Um, So it's not just oil. Um, Yeah. I mean, look, we've underinvested over the past few decades, um, but that's, that's somewhat subjective. Um, And, you know, the oil market, it's, it's very volatile. So um, prices might look good now, but you know they but oil the oil executives know that you know um a year from now it could look very bleak and then they've just committed you know hundreds of billions of dollars to um to investment and in exploration so uh, it's um it, it, the energy market is it's not it's not just like you know let's invest more today and we'll get more tomorrow uh, you you need a much longer term plan and the markets just don't see um, the, don't see the payoff right now uh, to the extent that you know we might wish they, they did um, but even so the, the supply wouldn't be online until it was probably you know not really helpful for us
0: yeah, and it seemed like the signal during the Trump administration was invest in exploration, right? Because there was a uh, it was a pro energy administration, pro drilling administration. The signal last eighteen months have been maybe not. There are, you know, questions about whether these ESG rules of the Security Exchange Commission is gonna scare some people away. Um, has the signal been so significantly changed that people are pulling back from production in your mind?
2: I, I don't know about that. I mean, I think, you know, we're we're seeing um there's definitely a lot, you know, the environmental um, uh, pushback on um, on drilling exploration, even some key, um, you know, LNG production p- potential, you know, has been scaled back um, a bit in the U.S., and that means, you know, we have to turn to other countries, and sometimes those countries are unsavory. <laughs> um, you know, I remember a few years ago when I think it was what Massachusetts had to import uh-huh. LNG from, I think it, yeah, from, um, from one of those. Ones. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we have, you know, Americans have to make a decision. I mean, you know, and, and it's, it's ultimately, you know, a, I mean, well up to the courts, but, and, and then, and then public opinion in terms of, you know, the trade-offs um, there's really no good solution. There's always trade-offs. Um, but the, I, I think the good news is that technology industry is, um, is finding ways to get around the environmental concerns. Um, and I don't mean um, deviate yeah. from them, but I right, mean right. in a good way, like right. find, finding a solution to, to, um, to drill and um, explore, but at the same time, do it in a way that's not going to leave, you know, everlasting damage to, um, to the location of their activities. So in that sense, you know, I, I think the market um, can, can you know, offers a lot of hope Um, because, um, you know, it's all price signals. The government sets the rules. You know, businesses respond. um, And um, when prices are uh, uh, – when it makes sense for them to invest, they do invest. Um, And, um, you know, we have a a lot of emerging markets uh, continuing to grow over the next uh, couple decades. And so, um, you know, the world's uh, demand for energy is is not going anywhere uh, anytime soon.
0: Yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the, the the need is there. I and mean, it's it's one of the big engines of the economy. Uh, Christine, what is the best way for people to stay in touch with all the good work you do? I follow you on Twitter. I think you're one of the most important voices in the economy, economic space. But how do people keep up with all the good work that you're doing at Mercatus?
2: Well, we're at Mercatus. Mercatus is Latin for market, uh, mercatus.gmu.edu. And all of our work is there. And... Um, yeah and uh, and and check out a lot you know great colleagues and um you know we're basically trying to find market-based solutions for problems and then we kind of uh, we're a bridge between acad- academics and policymakers.
0: yeah no, that's exactly right uh, for the free market forces and uh, your twitter handle i believe is at christine mcdan right mcdan yes all right great one great one to follow on uh social media if you haven't folks All right. Well, thank you so much. We made a lot of sense of these very big numbers today, and I can't wait to have you back on real soon, Christine.
2: Thank you so much, John.
0: You as well. Have a great rest of the day. Folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day.
2: Okay, it's time to commit.
3: Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All
0: right, folks. Welcome back to the commercial break. So glad you can join us today. Time to wrap things up for the weekend. We just had Brent down here. And it's a good reminder that the Heritage Foundation does a lot of great work. And they're a great partner with just the news. We have done some content specials and policy specials with Heritage Action for America, Heritage Foundation, a related arm. They're doing a lot of great stuff, but they also have an extraordinary news and information site. If you haven't checked it out, you're missing out on it. I check it out every day. The Daily Signal is your source. For easy to digest and honest reporting on current events and the most important policy debates of the day, Daily Signal provides that information plus commentary and policy analysis from the nation's top experts. To get the story without any spin, all you got to do is go to dcmorningnews.org. That's easy to remember. dcmorningnews.org. The Daily Signal's investigative team of honest journalists is devoted to bringing you the real stories behind the headlines and some of the most underreported yet important news and events of the day. Inform your day by starting your mornings with the Daily Signal. You can subscribe now by going to dcmorningnews.org. One more time, dcmorningnews.org. Go check out all the great work. My good friend, Rob Bluey, doing such great work there. I love what they do. Check them out every day. I do. They're on my must-read list as a journalist here in Washington. It should be on your list, too. Check it out, dcmorningnews.org. Hey, tonight we're going to have a great show. We have one of the most important voices on Wisconsin election integrity on the show tonight, reacting to this extraordinary Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling that we talked about, striking down mobile drop boxes in Wisconsin declaring them unlawful. We also got Steve Moore, the Great Economist and Heritage. Paige Willie, you'll I heard her on the podcast. She's gonna join us on the TV show tonight. And Patrick Hedger, VP of Taxpayer Protection Alliance. Four great guests on the TV show tonight. Don't miss that. Just the News, not noise, 6 p.m. on Real America's Voice, channel 219. On the Dish Network, channel 240 on Pluto. And on all the apps, Roku, the Just the News app, and of course, the Real America's Voice app. Check all of those out tonight. So grateful you can join us. Have a great evening, folks. And thank you once again for listening to our show today. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia Collusion. Hunter Biden